You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Heather McCain from Live, Educate, Transform Society, otherwise known as Let's. Heather, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, I'm Heather McCain. I am founder and executive director of, as you said, Live, Educate, Transform Society, which uh, we just changed the name of this year. We used to be called Creating Accessible Neighborhoods. Thank you very much for yeah. joining today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And just to kind of get the ball rolling, what does Live, Educate, and Transform Society do? Yeah, so uh, we are a disability organization that is entirely run by disabled and neurodivergent people. Uh, the majority of which are also 2SLGBTQIA+. And our organization is very focused on the intersectional experiences of disabled people and representing that through uh, education, like our workshops. Um, some of our workshops include crip kindness, disability awareness, gender and sexuality, imposter syndrome. Our latest is environmental justice and disability and uh, we also do speaking events. Uh, our latest service is low sensory spaces. Um, so essentially, we're just trying to make the world more accessible. Amazing. It sounds like you're doing a lot of great work. And you've been around for quite a while, right? You started in 2005? 18 right? years, yeah. Wow, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of our trans members thinks it's very fitting that at 18 we changed our name again. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. As a trans person, I can appreciate yeah. that. Um, and you've talked uh, in your website about how society will gatekeep services. They'll be skeptical of people who have disabilities and whether those disabilities are real. Has that been something that you've noticed improving over the years, or is that still a big challenge? It's definitely still a big challenge. I think there is a lack of understanding of the broad spectrum of disability and what it looks like or doesn't look like. And there's still a lot of people who expect disability to be physical disability and people with visible like mobility devices or something that they can clock right but just by looking at someone. Um, and so a lot of people gatekeep it thinking that they're protecting services for those who actually need it without that knowledge of how to recognize a disabled person or also just to to recognize that if someone asks for it just let them <laughs> use it right and so yeah there's still like universities that have elevators but you have to have doctor's notes in order to be able to use it and even at that if you don't have a mobility device they may fight you on it there's still bus drivers who won't put down a ramp for someone who doesn't you know, to the bus driver look accessible. Um, and so these are issues that are, are continuing. I think there's definitely more awareness about disability. And so there has been improvement. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a continued issue. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that things like that happen. I recently saw a video uh, where a police officer came up to someone who had a service dog and grabbed their dog and wouldn't let go of it until the person proved that they had a disability. And I, I thought there were laws that uh, allowed for people with disabilities to navigate the world without being constantly questioned. Is that not the case or are they just not enforced? There are some laws. There's not a lot of accountability and the process by which disabled and neurodivergent people can fight for their rights to be recognized uh, and upheld 
is through the human rights um, cases, and those take years. You need a lawyer. It's also a very inaccessible process. Even just doing the forms at the beginning, um, you know, scare a lot of people off and cause them to question, like, is this really worth this much of my time, attention, energy? Um, and so unfortunately, you know, there's still that lack of accountability. And even with the new provincial laws that are being brought in, there is that lack of accountability again. They have these measures, but they don't have any information about who's checking on them and what are the consequences if they're not being upheld. And so it's very frustrating because we're essentially getting rights we already have again, <laughs> but they're still not being recognized or upheld. And again, education is such a big component. Um, guide and service dogs are definitely an example. We still have uh, taxi drivers and rideshare drivers who refuse a ride to somebody who has a service or guide dog. It is illegal, but you know, you can phone the taxi company and they'll just hang up on you. And there's really no place to go to, like having an ombudsman or some sort of, a, you know, office within the province would be really good. Um, because, yeah, right now, the human rights is the, the way to go. Right. And I mean, I've been through the human rights process, so yeah. I definitely understand that it's quite the barrier. It's it's complicated to get through, confusing. It takes a really long time. So. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, it sounds extremely frustrating. And I want to go back to something that you touched on uh, just a second ago, which is around the low sensory space program that you've introduced. Um, that's relatively new from my understanding. Can you talk about what a low sensory space is and why it's important to create those? Yeah, absolutely. So a low sensory space is somewhere where someone who is neurodivergent or you know, you don't have to be neurodivergent, but if you're overwhelmed by emotions or senses, um, so if you're in a place where there's lots of crowds and noises and you need a place to regulate your emotions, you can come to that space and be supported in having some quieter time. Uh, in our spaces, we have stim toys, which I've brought some examples of, and uh, we have coloring and books We've got, you know, you can sit on the ground, you can sit at tables. Uh, all our spaces are hosted by neurodivergent people who are trauma-informed and aware of harm reduction. And so it's also a place where people can feel free to, like, share if they're having an anxiety attack or experiencing a mental health crisis. For example, at Pride, Pride, you know, joy and the celebration of Pride is often talked about, but there's a lot of grief that goes on at Pride. And so for a lot of people, it's nice to come to a place where they can talk about that if they need to or just be among other people who understand what it's like to be overwhelmed and to need that that time to just kind of come down. When I was a, a little kid, I would come home from school and sit in my closet for an hour after school to like come down from being around other people and being overwhelmed. And so, you know, it's essentially instead of requiring people to make their own independent deprivation, sensory deprivation tanks. We're, we're creating a space that celebrates neurodivergent people, recognizes that we want them to be part of all events. 
um, and also creates a space for people who are experiencing other things, you know, life is hard. <laughs> and there are people who maybe like say they're going to a conference and something is really like touching something that might be triggering for them. Or there's just a lot going on in their life and they need to get away from the networking and the pressures of the, the conference. They can come to a low sensory space and and just really kind of help regulate their emotions and and honestly just be a kid. Like, you know, I think it's a space where people are given permission to be a kid. We've got toys, we've got, you know, coloring books, and it's just nice to like not have these expectations of how you're supposed to act. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a, a neurodiverse person myself, I, I know that it's really important in those situations like Pride, which is an incredibly stimulating environment to have spaces where you can get away from it for a little while. My coping mechanism has always been working. Mm-hmm. Um, if I don't attend Pride events unless I have some sort of job to right. do because by being occupied, I can get over my social anxiety. Um, but a lot of people just want to show up and take in the event. And so I I would imagine if I was doing that, I would want to have a space like that to be able to go to. And you talked about having stim toys in those spaces and you have some with you uh, for our audience who's watching on the YouTube channel. They might be able to see these uh, on the table. And maybe we can describe a little bit about what a stim toy is, the types of stim toys you have for those who are just listening in. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a large selection of stim toys within our um, low sensory spaces and stim is short for stimulation so people who are over or under stimulated use these toys as a way to help with anxiety or concentration i use stim toys for example in meetings because it's really hard with all the medications i'm on it's hard to stay awake when listening to people and so by using one part of my brain and playing with these toys, I'm able to keep the other part of my brain aware, concentrating and focused. Um, And for other people, it just kind of like helps move some of the energy that is coiled up inside of them out. And so it can be as simple as uh, like at home, I have a little um, bike underneath my desk that I use in meetings. Mm -hmm. And it's just a way to like move your body. And uh, we have two types of stim toys we have stim toys that people can use within the spaces we provide and then we have a large collection of stim toys that people are free to take for themselves and um, one of the ways that our low sensory space has been used is we've had families who have brought their kids there to see their kids play with this large selection of stim toys Mm -hmm. and realize kind of like what do they like some people kind of like stretchy things and some people like spinny things and so it's a way for them also to understand uh, and it's pretty apparent very quickly (laughs) who likes what and so it has to do with textures sounds all these kind of things so I have the classic one is a slinky so I have these little plastic slinkies that people can kind of just like you know you can either stretch and let bounce back or people like to trace the rings up and down uh, kind of meditatively Uh, I have these, they look like soccer balls, but if you place your fingers on either end, um, it it, uh, spins. And uh, so that's a a nice toy to just kind of like play with quietly. Um, I also have rings and they're coiled little rings and you fit them on your finger. And when you run them up and down your finger, it hits an acupressure point. 
and so it's very relaxing. This is probably one of our most popular toys, uh, and it's funny because people look at it and they're kind of like, eh, what's that really going to do? And then they put it on and try it, and it is very relaxing. Um, and for some people, it's a certain finger. Other people, it's all fingers, so it's really interesting to watch people use those. And uh, then we also have a variety of stickers. And so one set is tactile stickers and we have large triangles or we have circles. Um, and uh, the rectangles uh, are gradient colors. And then the circle stickers, we've got like mountain scapes and um, various patterns that are nice and colorful. And they're tactile. So when you rub your finger over them, um, they have kind of like, yeah, it's kind of bumpy and it's mm -hmm. something that people put on a water bottle or their phone. I have it on my steering wheel. Um, and you just, it helps center you like by rubbing that again, it's like a meditation sort of a thing, right? Like it it's, is, it's, it's oddly relaxing. satisfying. Exactly. It? And so those are great. And then the other sticker that we have, um, they're less tactile, but they are various shapes and so they'll look like um i'll give this cloud one to you here and we've got one that's a b and if you look closely it says breathe in and breathe out and so it's a great way to teach people how to do different meditations because you trace it with your finger and you know like the breathe in area might be larger than the breathe out and so it's different ways of being able to Focus on something and just kind of like remind yourself to breathe in, breathe out. Uh, when we were at Victoria Pride, the first person that came into the tent was someone who it was their very first year being out. It was their very first public event and they were having an anxiety attack. And so they just kind of sat in the corner for 15 minutes tracing this and focusing on their breathing. And then they were ready to go out and they carried it with them and it just gave them a little bit more confidence that they had something that they could use to ground themselves. Yeah, I was going to say that this sounds a lot like what I was told to do when I was having panic attacks a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got like balls that are, they're called honey balls, so they're just nice to squeeze. And we've got these kind of rope things that stretch and, you know, balls that bounce really high or have different like divots that are nice to play with and... Um, so yeah, it's quite a nice selection of and stuffies. You know, I think you can you can tell if you walk into somebody's house and there's a lot of stuffies. That's a neurodivergence <laughs> signal. Right, right. And uh, and boy, does my living room look like that because the stuffies live in my living room when they're not in the low sensory tent because I cannot put them in a box or a bag. That just feels too mean. So <laughs> right. So they're all. I have piles of these uh, stuffies, and uh, one of the things that we focus on too is that everything that we supply is washable um, because you know a lot of our members are immunodeficient so we want to make sure that all the stuffed animals and all the stim toys are being washed in between use from event to event and we have hand sanitizer and stuff but yeah the stuffies are another thing that people just you know it's nice to hold on to something that's soft and squeezable and you can just kind of like be there with it and it comforts you so yeah yeah, I, I find it's uh, an interesting thing to describe to people when you're playing with a, a stim toy, or in my case, what I'll do is uh, draw Doodle, in yeah. order to be able to process what people are saying a lot right. of the time. 
So uh, there's this one meeting in particular that I have with an organization once a week and two of us are artists and we both do this. So we're on a Zoom call, but the two of us are looking down and we're drawing and it's it looks like we're not paying attention, but we're actually able to process the information much more clearly when when we have that going on. And I imagine that's the same with with these toys as well, right? Yeah. And I have a coloring app on my phone that really helps me in meetings. And it's it's kind of like a paint by numbers. It's, you know, so it's fairly easy, but it creates nice pictures. So it feels productive. It has me doing something, but it doesn't require a lot of attention. So I'm able to focus. And it's very similar uh, to what you're saying. But yeah, it's something that just kind of helps redirect some of the energy um, that you have that you're either kind of too amped up or not amped up enough. <laughs> right. So it's interesting that they can work in both ways. They can sort of destimulate or stimulate. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's kind of a misconception that you're either sensory avoidant or sensory seeking. And, you know, often people are both. It's just it depends on what that uh, senses. So like I'm a speed freak, but you know, I don't like it when I'm around a lot of people or noises. And so there's certain things that I love to, um, to seek out when it comes to sensory stuff, or I will play my music extremely loud in my car, but I don't like being somewhere like a restaurant where they're playing their music really loud. So it's interesting things like that. Part of it is control, right? (laughs) Um, But another thing, and it surprises, right? Like I don't like a a loud noise being suddenly made in a public space when I'm out there. But at my house, some of the ways that I stim are through vocal stims, which are just weird little yips and and shouts and noises that I make that probably would startle somebody else um, that I'm able to do very loudly in my own space. And so, um, and that's the other thing too, within our space, like if somebody is vocally stimming, you know, people aren't like staring at them. They understand that that's how they're processing it themselves. And so it's a very accepting space, which has been really nice. Right. And can you maybe explain what the difference is between a vocal stim and Tourette's? Yeah, so um, a vocal stim is often, like it can be a repeated phrase. So somebody might say something and then that the person that they're conversing with will have to say that phrase like multiple times. Um, and it can be that people have like a certain part of a song that just helps them calm down or they have that kind of compulsion to, to use in moments when they're very stressed. Um, and Tourette's is more of a response. Not everyone who has a vocal stim has control over what they choose um, to use. Uh, and so it's similar to Tourette's because, again, with Tourette's, you're not choosing to say what you are saying. Or um, with Tourette's, too, it can be tics, um, like with um, your mouth or your eyes, too. So it's happening both vocally and within you know your face or you know certain things like tapping your hand or or bouncing your knee or things like this can be a tick that comes with Tourette's as well um and so there is similarity for sure between the two interesting yeah and I'm curious about your own personal experiences so we often talk about intersections on this podcast and having looked at your website, your LinkedIn profile, you've talked about how you are uh, disabled, neurodivergent, queer, trans, asexual. How 
or I guess, what is it like to navigate the world when you have all of these different intersections? It's interesting because I've been disabled my whole life without knowing that I was disabled. Um, because when I was younger, like I had a speech impediment, went to speech therapy for a couple of years, but that wasn't necessarily kind of declared as a disability. I had mental health issues from a very young age, and a lot of that was due to my sensory issues. Um, I came from a household, thank goodness, where my mom understood that my responses were not like a temper tantrum, but rather a sensory overload meltdown. She ran a daycare, and I think it helped that she had that experience. Um, and so I, the outside world overwhelmed me, but I did have space within my own home where I could go into my closet and not be shamed. And I could, uh, and that really helped. And then at 17, my body just started falling apart. And that's when the physical disability came in. And it's very interesting because the mental disability, mental health issue wasn't really diagnosed or addressed uh, in the same way that the physical disability is. Mm. And so it wasn't until my mid-20s that I really started to understand what anxiety and depression and, and how that affected me. Um, and also, so I started having the physical disability at 17. Um, it happened the summer after graduation. Within six months, I'd had to quit school, work, driving, writing, like pretty much everything. And it took about six years to get a diagnosis. Uh, found out that I had a genetic mutation, um, as I say, where I'm hypermobile. It's not Ehlers-Danlos, which is another type of hypermobility. Um, I'm what they call a spontaneous mutation because there's no genetic history. Uh, and usually there is. Um, and so what's interesting is like, my queer identities didn't have space <laughs> until I was in my 30s because I was so focused on getting a diagnosis, dealing with the medical system, and the disability was really the focus of my 20s. I knew I was asexual from a very young age before there was even a term for asexual. And it's really been the last, you know, five, ten years that people have even been talking about it and that it's been accepted as part of the rainbow alphabet. Okay. Um, and because, you know, in my 20s, I tried to go to some queer things and was told that asexuality wasn't part of uh, the identities because it, it was the lack of sexuality. Um, so, you know, there was some bias there and some education to be done. Um, but yeah, like the disability just took over a lot of my life. It's interesting because I had told some friends, like, I understand so much of the trans experience, except I don't want certain surgeries, which seem to be the focus in every media representation of, of being trans. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, my late 30s that I began to learn more about trans identities and non-binary and to understand kind of the, the variety, the broad spectrum, just as we were talking about the broad spectrum of disability, um, to identify myself as being trans. Um, and uh, there's a lot of crossover between the queer and neurodivergent community, which is really interesting. If you're autistic, you're 10 times more likely to be trans. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard this. Yeah. And so it's interesting because some of the intersections go well together, like being neurodivergent and queer. Um, and other intersections, it's much more isolated. Like you can be disabled in disabled spaces, but not 
disabled and trans spaces because they're not very accessible. And so it's you're having to split yourself into to two different kind of versions um, because in disability spaces, you know, they're only beginning to really learn about 2S LGBTQIA+. And so, you know, they haven't always been the safest place or even having to educate everyone about your pronouns and things like that. So we've definitely come a, a far away and people understand that those in intersections do impact people. Um, I have certainly had a kind of easier go of it just because of the support within my family and and also that so many of our issues, my issues weren't like labeled until later in, in life. Um, and I think that gave me a little bit of an allowance to like ease into myself, <laughs> which was quite nice. And by the time that I found the appropriate terms and names for myself, you know, my friends and family were like, okay, cool. And <laughs> my parents are still struggling with the they, them, but they're, they're trying. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's the big thing. And, and then just talking to our members, you know, people who are racialized and, don't see that represented in, you know, disability organizations or there's people who are neurodivergent who are, you know, if they are a neurodivergence that isn't as well known as like autism or other types, ADHD, then um, they don't feel as welcome in queer spaces. And so it's interesting to hear about the intersections and how that impacts people's experiences. Right. And I hope that we get to a place where you're not having to turn off pieces of yourself depending on the space that you're in. And we all have the opportunity to just be authentically who we are. And uh, for you personally, do you feel like you're in a place now where you feel confident in who you are and how you identify? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's taken me a long time uh, and a lot of work to be comfortable. It's interesting, though, I, you know, my mental health issues especially when I was younger, felt a lot more personal. And then having a physical disability felt less like a personal attack and more just kind of life. It happens. Even the intersection of having different types of disability has been interesting because I sometimes use a walker, sometimes use a wheelchair, and sometimes, like for this interview, park right at the entrance and walk in. And so how I'm treated in those various <laughs> mobility ways is different from situation to switch situation. How my mental health issues are treated versus how my physical disabilities are treated are different, just like how my neurodivergence is. Um, the neurodivergence is a lot newer. Like I'm learning so much on TikTok <laughs> about ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And of course, part of that is because the research has been very male centric. And so a lot of uh, women and gender nonconforming people have kind of been left out as our uh, characteristics are different than that of males. And so, um, or can be. Yeah. Uh, I was originally diagnosed as bipolar. Right. Uh, turns out I have ADHD, but that yeah. wasn't where the psychiatrist's mind went for whatever reason so and even you know i find it interesting with like family intersections so when i was a teen i had like pretty bad anger issues at inanimate objects um, i would come home from school and just kind of shit all over my mom and 
Um, she, you know, she ran a home daycare and thank goodness she was there because there's no chance I would have made it through high school if I had come home to an empty house. You know, we had a conversation in my thirties and I said, like, why didn't you ever get me help? You know, because so obviously there was like mental health issues in that, but she was raised by a mom who was bipolar. Mm -hmm. And so for my mom, I was never as bad as my grandma. And so she didn't think it was out of the ordinary. Um, and so I find things like that really interesting too, how experiences within a family can affect how they then interact with the next generation of people. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for her, I was never as bad as her mom was. Um, and so I was still kind of like, not at that stage yet where she felt that help was needed. And so, you know, it's interesting to be able to reflect on things like that with, with family to, to have those conversations to kind of like hear about why maybe your needs weren't met. Yeah. It's inter just intersections in general, I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how it, it's all sort of relative in a way, like it's not for the person experiencing it, mm -hmm. but for the people around depending on their lived experiences and the people they've interacted with, their perception of your or other people's mental health issues can vary quite drastically. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of people with disabilities is that a lot of the time there's a, an element of self-advocacy, if not a, a very large element of self-advocacy yeah. that has to be done. Is there something that can be done to alleviate the need for that? Education is is definitely the big piece. You know, unfortunately, the one of the biggest things that has helped with self-advocates are other <laughs> self-advocates who help. Mm -hmm. So it's it's peer advocacy. Um, so, for example, I run Chronically Queer with Harmony Bongat, who's now the facilitator. And um, Chronically Queer is for 2SLGBTQIA plus people who have chronic health conditions. Um, and it's a great group because it's peers helping each other advocate for what they need. Um, but we need to get away from it just being on the disability community, right? And so it is so necessary to know how to self-advocate. Um, and it's great to find other people who can advocate for themselves and can help you as well. But we need the medical system to be less ist. We need it, you know, it's, it's racist, it's sexist, it's ableist. And, uh, you know, it's difficult because the system was built on those is. And so mm -hmm. there's no way to completely eradicate it, but there's ways to educate and move the conversation forward. And also, it's not just about the patients. It's about the people who work within the medical system as well. And, you know, the biases that they experience, whether they have disclosed or not. Uh, it can create mental health issues if you're constantly having to deal with discriminatory behaviors that you can't say anything about because you don't feel safe in disclosing. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, for example, one um, project that I work on is Beyond the Binary, which is we are creating a guide of language for um, healthcare workers across Canada um, so that they would be more comfortable with kind of the rainbow alphabet uh, being able to like converse and understand pronouns and the different identities and why it's important to know these. Um, and I can say like my experience as an asexual person ha has been interesting in the medical system because of people's particularly male doctors 
opinions of you know what asexuality whether it exists or doesn't exist and so that's the thing too is like it's I think it all comes down to education but also a willingness to learn and unfortunately not everyone within the medical system has that willingness to learn there's a lot of great people who really do want to learn who want to become more competent when it comes to conversations about disability um, and gender and sexuality and various things but there's a lot of people who don't want change or it scares them or it's too overwhelming because it seems like there's all these groups that have come out of nowhere and all of a sudden want people to understand them and you know so even within the disability you know people are like well we're accessible you can get through the door in a wheelchair so like do we still have to work on accessibility issues uh, and so it's kind of getting over that like overwhelm um, to the point where they really want to continue to to work on the system itself. Um, but self-advocacy, unfortunately, will continue to be like the main way that people get help. I think social media has been an excellent help with that. Most of our members who are neurodivergent have learned more on social media than they have through the medical system. Um, and that, again, is like peer-to-peer, -peer, which is a lot of the work that we do, too, is when you can't go to the professionals to get that information or it's a very narrow representation of that that identity then it's other people and there's just such a relief in knowing that you're not alone in having to fight for these things and you don't want other people to be going through what you're going through but you're so glad that you know there are other people who you can say something and they'll just be like yeah i understand that's valid mm -hmm. And I mean, social media is such a huge um, benefit for people who can't access therapists, per perhaps, right? They're wanting to learn about uh, a mental health issue that they think they might have, but they can't get a diagnosis for. Is, is there also an element, though, of social media spreading misinformation about mental health issues? For sure. And, you know, there's there's a lot that's bad on social media and a lot that mocks disability and neurodivergent too, like... You know, you see posts about how is everybody have ADHD now? Like, you know, I get this one a lot. Yeah, yeah. people treat it like it's, you know, the, the latest kind of cool thing to collect. Um, and or maybe we're just more aware of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of harm that is very specific and intentional. Um, and so social media isn't always the healthiest thing. Uh like for myself, I am very rarely on Facebook or Instagram because it just does not serve me to, you know, know things that I can't help with. And so I try to focus on, you know, what can I actually help with and address and um, what do I not necessarily need to know that's going on or I don't need to be reading a comment section about. TikTok's been interesting because for some people it's been really great and then other people have kind of gone through the algorithm has thrown them into to spaces that are not that safe. So it really depends on the person too, which is hard. I think one of the things that has been great about TikTok is the amount of sharing that our members have done with videos. And so it's been a great way. One of the things that we're hoping to, um, not that we're hoping to, that we are going to have in 2024, which sounds so weird to say, is to have a resource section on our website where we have examples of videos and people that they can go and look to so that you don't actually have to kind of scour social media by yourself 
um, but that will have it kind of here are some people that are legit about ADHD or here are some people that are legit about this so that some of that kind of misinformation is is less out there and but you know that misinformation is always going to be out there ableism is so deeply embedded in our society people think that we want these identities for attention I mean we hear that as trans people as well unfortunately that's out there but I am heartened by the community that's out there and just the amount of sharing you know, there's neurodivergent love languages, and uh, one of the neurodivergent love languages is sending videos to, like, friends, and I have different uh, folders for certain friends, and I send them, and it's just a nice way of, like, even when you have no energy and no ability to, like, interact with a person, you can send them a quick video and be like, I'm thinking of you, here's something that I know will make you laugh or smile or feel validated. Um, and and I think it's it's a beautiful thing when it works. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. And I, I want to come back to that uh, self-advocacy component for a second and that concept that you brought up around supporting other people coming together and doing that advocacy work as a group. Because one of the labels that you most closely align with that you feel very proud of is uh, Crip Doula. Can you explain what that means and, and why you're so proud of that? Yeah, so Crip Doula is a disability justice um term that uh, is for somebody who helps disabled people navigate our complex systems, build resources, and uh, create community and support. And it is a term that is community given. And so it's not something that you can kind of claim for yourself. Uh, Community first has to recognize you as that. And so members of Chronically Queer gave me the title. uh, And so of course, it, it means the most to me because it was given to me by people who feel validated and recognized by the work that I do, but also because, you know, Crip and MAD are two terms that disabled people are reclaiming much as we've done with the term queer, um, and they're both very political terms. And Crip is tied to so much of disability justice, which is a movement that was created by racialized and 2SLGBTQIA plus people who did not feel seen by the disability rights movement, um, who felt that they were not felt that they were left out, who were left out. And so disability justice has 10 principles and out of these principles have become conversations. And I have been trying to remember the name. I can't remember the name of who created the term cryptula, but it was only in 2017, I believe, that it was created. What they said about creating the word Cryptula was that in order to imagine that you can do something, there has to be a name for it first. And the CRIP communities, the disability communities have been doing this kind of peer support community care um, for so long, and we don't have terms for it, right? And we aren't looking to legitimize it because it already is legit, but we're recognizing the work that we do for each other and the work that we have to do because the systems have failed us and crip very much is a political term that recognizes like those who have come before us and reminds us that the work that we're doing we may not see the changes that we're working towards but we're laying that groundwork for other people who hopefully will And having done this for 18 years, I know how frustrating it is to see how slow progress can be. But I've also seen, you know, being able to think of like where 
I was as a teen, uh, who's both queer and disabled, and the awareness of queerness and dis- disability versus now, like, you know, the fact that there are two shows I know of this year that had asexual characters mm. is awesome. Yeah, cryptula to me, it, it's a community term, and that really means a lot to me because it is through community that I am who I am. Um, and it's through community that keeps me doing this work. I mean, when people ask me, what is the thing that, you know, frustrates you most about this work? And I often say people because, you know, you work with so many people who do this as a, a box to check. They don't actually want to do the work. They just want to say that they've done it. And it can be so frustrating and so exhausting. But the thing that makes me want to keep doing the work the most is people. Like, it's the same answer, but a totally different group. And I've got an amazing support system who, you know, really helps to support me and listen to me when I need to rant or just sit with me when I need them to hold space or kick down the door if they haven't heard from me in a while. And that matters. And I think a lot of disabled, neurodivergent, queer, trans people, like community is what gets us through. Um, And I think it's beautiful to see that there is more of a focus on community because it's not the systems and structures that have supported us. It's it's one another. Um, And so it's great to have language like disability justice does about all that work that has historically happened and continues to happen. Your organization, from what I understand, was founded based off of a need for uh, better transportation options. And it sounds like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to address that. Can you talk about what's changed and what still needs to change? Yeah, so um, at the time uh, that I started this, I was running chronic pain support group in Maple Ridge and I had started using a power wheelchair. And uh, where I lived in Maple Ridge, the buses came once an hour and the bus drivers would lie at least half of the times and say the ramp wasn't operating because they just didn't want to bother loading and unloading uh, because it took extra time. And this was when we had the buses with three steps at the front and the ramp would come out the top and then it would very slowly go down and then they'd have to lift me back up. And so there was no way for them to like now, if you say the ramp's broken, there's a way to manually undo the ramp. And so that doesn't really help them (laughs) in not loading someone. And so at that time they could just say it didn't work. And I wrote letter after letter to TransLink with no response um and couldn't find an organization to support me and then someone in my group jokingly said you should start your own organization and I looked into it and it seemed pretty simple so I appointed members of the chronic pain group as my board and started the organization wrote the exact same letter to TransLink but this time with executive director under my name and got a response a week later found out that they had a policy But that said, like, if the ramps weren't working, the bus driver had to call you a taxi and the taxi would take you to your final destination. The problem was that wasn't communicated to anybody, bus drivers or passengers. So I got copies of it, gave it to people, had it so that if a bus driver said, you know, the ramp's broken, then you would say this. And they knew that if they ordered a taxi when the ramp wasn't actually broken they were going to get in trouble and so Mm. it kind of solved that issue uh, in our area and then I had a flood of people come to me with other issues 
Um, now, as I mentioned, the buses are more accessible in that there is a way to manually do the ramp. I multiple times got trapped on buses mm -hmm. back when it was the, the ramp that went down the three steps where the ramp did break while I was on the bus and I had to drive the route multiple times while waiting for somebody to come to fix the ramp. Wow. Um, that doesn't happen anymore, thankfully. We have a lot more accessible bus stops and a lot more awareness from the drivers about people with disabilities, mostly though those with evident disabilities. So those who have mobility devices or older adults. And there's a lot of work that has been done on making sure that they're more accessible for people who are blind and partially sighted, such as the audible announcements. And um, unfortunately, there's also no change in like the amount of spaces that are available for a very big group of people because those two accessible spaces per bus are for people with mobility devices, people with disabilities, older adults, people with strollers, uh, and it doesn't meet the needs properly. Um, like if there's a full bus, there's people that need those spaces that can't access them. Exactly. And, and unfortunately what's happened is that they've kind of made those groups go after each other instead of going after TransLink or any bus authority, because we shouldn't be fighting people with strollers or forcing people with strollers to fold their strollers. Like I've seen parents who have woken their kid from sleeping to fold the stroller the kid starts screaming they get kicked off the bus because it's too loud it you know it's not a good solution <laughs> there should be more spaces for for buses and i was just speaking about this when it comes to airplanes like airplanes don't allow people with mobility devices to bring their mobility device on the plane which is such a simple uh you know way to solve some of the baggage handling issues and they say, well, the buses aren't made that way, but you're the main buyer of buses. So you have that financial ability to say, we will go with another company unless you work with us on a better design. I mean, I've said for years that a lot of our buses have a seat that is at the back door that faces the back door. And if that was taken out, a stroller could get on the back and have an additional spot there. There is improvement, but there's still not improvement. Uh, you only have to look at the sky trains to notice that there's improvement between the older sky trains and the new sky trains when it comes to space for people with mobility devices. Um, but really the space on the route to the airline it wasn't made with disabled people in mind. It was made with luggage in mind. Right. And so disabled people can fit there, but it still wasn't made for them. Um, and the older SkyTrain stations has, ha SkyTrain uh, trains have very narrow sections that say it's accessible, but don't fit most mobility devices. So my power chair doesn't fit there. I'm blocking half of the aisle. Um, and then they also have that barrier that you have to move your mobility device around, which is very difficult in crowded situations during rush hour and all that. And there's not a lot of education with passengers about like moving for people who have mobility devices or letting people on. Uh, one of the things that I was really proud of this year is that the work I've been doing with Vancouver Pride led to them uh, changing the location of the festival and the parade route. And part of that was tra transit related because 
You know, when I went to Pride with my power wheelchair, I used to have to get the uh, cops to help me get on to the train because nobody would want to make space at Waterfront for somebody in a mobility device. And obviously that is something that not everyone would feel safe accessing, um, utilizing the cops. But, um, you know, these are the transit issues that remain. And a lot of the transit issues that remain are because other passengers don't have a good understanding. Uh, one of the big issues are people who have non-evident disabilities who are see seated in the accessible or disability section and have a lot of other people pressure them, telling them that they're disrespectful for not getting up if there's an older adult or pregnant person. And that can be quite difficult because you don't want to have to get into an argument with someone and some people don't want to disclose their disability. Uh, so some people have created, you know, like a tag that says, I have an invisible disability, um, I need this spot sort of a thing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's been something that we've been trying to get TransLink to get on board with is having some sort of identifier for people that they can use with bus drivers or with passengers to say, hey, I have a disability, you know. And again, that goes to, to education, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and congratulations on uh, creating that change within Vancouver Pride. That actually brings me to the next question I had for you, because you were a Grand Marshal in the Pride Parade this year. There was that big route change, and um, the big reason behind that was accessibility, getting closer to transit. I talked to quite a few people at the festival grounds this year who said, this is the first time I've been to Pride in a decade because they just simply couldn't access it before because of uh, the transit or because of the space and, and just being overwhelmed by crowds, not having those uh, spaces where they could go and, and get away from the stimulation. So looking back uh, on how that all happened, the, the lead up, the planning for it and the execution, what were your thoughts? Did, was it done really well or are there improvements that are going to be made for next year? Yeah, so uh, I was hired in 2019 and um, my hiring was based on a lot of advocacy within the organization, trying to get recognition for people with disabilities. Um, and I've been working with them since then. Uh, Harmony Bonga has also been helping as well as um, in 2019 when I did accessibility audits of all their events. We had a group of 12 people do the, um, do the parade because I wanted to make sure that we had people of different intersecting identities and some people who'd never been to Pride, some people who were experienced with Pride. And, um, you know, I definitely have to give credit to Vancouver Pride Society for making such a big change. So often when I work with organizations and they make uh, changes based on the accessibility recommendations, they're like the bare minimum of what is suggested. And uh, this definitely was putting the whole organization on the line because they knew that they were going to hear both the good and the bad um, and heated in both directions. Um, so I definitely applaud them for taking that big of a step forward. And there was a lot of great thought that went into it. It's not easy to pick a new <laughs> location for a parade and and they had to work with the city on that. Um, and, uh, you know, COVID kind of prolonged the um, the process, uh, but I think that may have in some ways helped to give extra time to to really create the, the route that they did, which I think was great. And I heard so many people 
who, yeah, they either went for the first time or hadn't been on in a really long time. We continue to work with Vancouver Pride. So we went on a walk with staff because there's some newer staff. And we explained, like, here are the reasons why we made these suggestions and uh, kind of pointing out different things like the amount of parks that are along the way. So if people are overstimulated, they can easily split off or people who have little kids and the kids need to like run around or something. The fact that there's areas where there's six lanes of traffic instead of two meant that people were able to like spread out a blanket and sit on it and not have people crowding them which is awesome. Um, and so we were able to do the, the walk and continue to have conversations with them throughout. Um, we also ran the low sensory space at uh, Pride as well. And we continue to, to work with Vancouver Pride and we're excited by that. Obviously the list of recommendations that we have can't be completely met. Uh, and that's understandable. Accessibility is not an endpoint; it's a journey. Um, and it will continue to change and adapt. And uh, right now, Vancouver Pride is is really on board with that. And they want to continue learning. That's something that I really appreciate about the staff that are there. Are They were very enthusiastic and eager to learn more. And there were a lot of questions that were asked. And, you know, it was obvious that there was a lot of thought that went behind it. They also hired um, Amar, who is their accessibility kind of advisor within Pride, which is awesome because it shouldn't just be kind of the occasional consultant that is hired, but there should be someone that is an integral part of the organization as well. Uh, and Amar did an excellent job. So yeah, we look forward to working with Pride and you know, there's the big Pride event that's happening next year. So mm -hmm. we've already talked to them a bit about that and we're excited to, to continue working with them. and. We're also hoping that um, we can utilize what they've done to encourage other prides around Canada and other places to, you know, look at their own accessibility and ask what they can do. The entire Pride weekend, I mean, I was just floating because uh, I had so many people coming up to me and it was, it was, you know, volunteers, visitors, staff who all were very excited about the changes. There were vendors who were able to go for the very first time because they didn't have to deal with an extremely steep hill down to the beach or sand or things like that. Um, and so it was great. But at the same time, there were still issues. One of them was the long lineup. For some people who aren't able to stand for very long, they weren't able to stand long enough to be able to get in. There was two days of pride uh, uh, for the festival this year and one day was actually great for people who were neurodivergent because it was quieter but it was hardly advertised um, and so a lot of people missed out on it uh, and when they came on the second day it was overly crowded packed yeah yeah it was quite the difference <laughs> I went on both days okay yeah exactly and so I think you know Communication is definitely something that needs to be worked on and getting the messages out to community. Also, I think there was a lack of understanding about why the changes were made. And that was something that definitely, um, I hope can be improved on. We had a big sign at Let's's uh, booth that talked about the, the work that we'd been doing and the changes. And we had so many people who were like, oh, that's why the route changed. So. You know, I think there's a 
there's always work to be done. Um, I'm excited that there was such a huge step and I will definitely be using that to pressure or encourage other organizations, pride organizations to, to think about what they can do. And, and yeah, it's just been great to hear my mom, uh, heard from, uh, someone in her building that, uh, their family always comes to do pride with them. And they usually have to go down so early to fight for a spot. But this year they were able to meet at Granville Island. They had breakfast together, had a good conversation, took the aqua bus over, you know, were able to kind of go for a stroll until they got to the spot. And there was still lots of space for them to pick a, a good location. And they were able to make like an entire day out of it instead of kind of fighting to get down there and being overwhelmed. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, improvements definitely to be made and we're excited that they're you know they understand that it is a continuing journey and the thing is that we're still learning about people you know I don't know in five years what other identities we will be aware of that we are then working to make space for as well and so I think you know uh, just the fact that there's so many more conversations about neurodivergent people shows that we're continually learning more about identities that uh, we want to keep making sure that people know that there is a space for everyone at the Pride events. Mm -hmm. And I was on the board of Vancouver Pride back in 2019 when, when that work started and um, it was very exciting and, and it's nice to see that it's finally come to fruition. Yeah. I also know that Vancouver Pride had been working for a while to try to get the city to change the parade route, um, partly because of accessibility, partly because they just wanted more space to yeah. have more floats and the, you know, the parade's growing, it was sort of outgrowing its previous uh, location. It was difficult. It, I think um, I heard from one of the people on the parade working group that it had been in the process or they'd been in the process of trying to advocate that for more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the city just was not open to changing. And I know that you've started working with the city as well on accessibility issues. Is that part of the reason that the city was willing to finally come around as well? Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, Let's has been hired by the city of Vancouver to do disability awareness training for all levels of staff, including uh, leadership team and mayor and council. And um, that came about through the accessibility uh, plan that the city of Vancouver has. And um, I think that helped with an increased awareness of why an accessible pride was important. Um, I think that the amount of advocates there are for both queer and trans people and disabled people in Vancouver has certainly got us to this moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is, there is definitely a relationship between uh, it finally happening and the city of Vancouver being more focused on accessibility. And yeah, the City of Vancouver just renewed my contract for another year, which is awesome. Uh, and they're very excited to have these conversations and move forward. And it's been great to have that awareness uh, be built. And I was able to talk about pride and, you know, why the changes were necessary. And, and I, it really helps to give people a tangible example of how improvements can be made. You know, I think within the social justice world, it can be easy to be disheartened because things either move so slow or there's so many 
backwards steps as we've seen especially in the trans community and so you know it's really nice to be able to celebrate a win and to use that win to hopefully continue to have more wins mm-hmm, absolutely and uh, pivoting a little bit to a, a different topic which is i came across an article in the tie of uh the chronically queer group and specifically there was a picture of you and Cat Webb, and we've mm-hmm. had Cat on this podcast before. Yeah, uh, we talked about intimate partner violence. It's actually one of the most popular episodes that we've put out on this podcast. Uh, can you discuss what chronic or explain what chronically queer is? Yeah, so chronically queer is a peer support group for 2S LGBTQIA plus people who have chronic health conditions, disabilities. So, you know that encompasses quite a few identities, chronically ill, disabled, crip, mad, um, neurodivergent. And uh, we don't have any have to be's like, you know, if you identify within that, then we welcome you. Unfortunately, there's gatekeeping even within our communities. And so I have people who contact me and say, oh, I'd love to go to your group. But I you know, I don't have a disability, I just can't walk long, or I can't walk upstairs because of my pain, or I really would like to join your group, but I'm just bisexual. That gatekeeping needs to stop within our communities as well, and so our doors are open to whoever would like to come. It's hybrid, so it's both online and in person. The South Burnaby Neighborhood House has uh, offered us free um, space, which is awesome and uh and literally given us the key because um when we meet their uh building is closed which is nice for some of our members who don't want to come into a space if they don't know that people are queer competent so it's nice to to know that that is our space during that time and um it's a great group of people who come together because We may not share the same experiences, but we have shared the same frustrations and kind of, uh, you know, we're not on the same journey, but we wave to each other as we've gone along and uh, we've helped support each other, educate each other. I've certainly learned a lot about my identities, you know, like there's a lot of assumptions that if you are one of the rainbow alphabet that you automatically know about all the other identities, which is not the case. And it's the same for people who have disabilities, mental health issues, neurodivergence. Um, so it's a great place to learn about other people's experiences. And we have great people like CatWeb and Harmony Bonget and, and people who know how to hold space and how to be with people and know whether they want advice or they just want someone to listen to them or they want someone to validate their experiences or help them advocate for themselves. There's a lot of education that happens, things like members making sure that other members know they should have photocopies of every doctor's report that you have because you don't actually ever know what that medical professional is saying behind your back and it's good to have copies of everything or things like that in BC you can record a doctor's appointment without asking for their permission um, and so that you have a record of what has happened. And um, so you're able to learn information like that. It's also a great group because although we meet once a month, we you know have a Facebook group, which is great, but also people check in with one another. And so, you know, we have people within our group who sometimes need to be on suicide watch. And so we've got community that comes together and is able to support them. Um, And we have 
people who, you know, in our group who have been, uh, who have experienced violence through the police, through wellness calls. And so there's an understanding within our group that, you know, if you're concerned about someone, you don't phone that. And what are other ways to address this? What are community care ways? One of the things that I'm really proud of too is that it's a space where people can talk about things that they can't talk about elsewhere. And one of the things is we have um, members who have suicidal ideation or thoughts. Um, and if they mention that to their counselor or, you know, psychologist, then they're obliged to report it um, as they might be harm for themselves. But there needs to be a space where people can talk about that without fear of them being punished for it. Um, and so, you know, we are very mindful of making sure that we're aware if somebody does need follow-up help or that. But, you know, so often when it comes to mental health issues, people aren't given a space where they can freely talk about what they're experiencing. Uh, and it's nice to just have a place where you can be open. And even if people haven't experienced it, you know, they really do want you to have that place um, to share. It's both beautiful and frustrating in that within that space, we've created this wonderful community that is accessible, that is open to everyone, that is open to learning and, and you know, being accountable to anything that we need to learn. It is so beautiful when it works, but it makes it all the more frustrating to go out into inaccessible spaces because you know it can happen. Like I think the phrase I use the most as in this work is it doesn't have to be this way, right? And uh, I love community spaces for, for what they create, but it's so frustrating to then go from that space into non-community centered spaces where it, you know, it could be accessible, but people are choosing not to have it accessible. Chronically queer is kind of its own little kind of gold flakes as I see it like we scatter out into the world and try to continue to advocate um, in different ways and and so there's strength that comes from that group uh, and that education and just that like warmth and support and great relationships I mean there have been uh, you know friendships romantic relationships sexual relationships that have come from uh, meeting people within that um, but yeah, it's just been a really nice space, uh, to be. And it's not like our group hasn't been without our struggles. When I started facilitating, we were with an organization that was quite ableist and we had to split from them because, um, you know, like the venue was not accessible and they weren't supporting the access needs. And so I think, that was interesting in itself. I think it was a great example of speaking up for ourselves. And, you know, so often disabled people are told that they should be thankful for whatever they get, that they don't ask for what they need. And uh, it's chronically queer as a space where we tell people like, you deserve <laughs> to get what you need. And, uh, you know, you, you need to speak up for yourself when you can, when you feel safe. And, uh, you know, here are ways that we can support you. And when you have those horrible experiences within the medical system or with people out in the world, you can come here and rant and people don't tell you that you are just being too sensitive or you took it the wrong way or they didn't really mean for it to sound that way or, you know, the things we hear in other places. 
Uh, and it's nice. It's nice to not always have to defend, you know, your experiences and your, your feelings. Mm-hmm. And one of the terms that I came across was disability justice. Mm-hmm. What, what does disability justice mean to you? Um, well, disability justice is very much, it's, it's about the principles that were created by Sins Invalid, um, which is uh, an art theater disability group in the, the U.S. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it was specifically created for people who were not centered in the disability rights movement. Um, and so for me, disability justice really is about the intersectionality, which is one of their principles. It's about leadership by most those most impacted, very much about cross-movement solidarity. And what that means is like, for example, our latest workshop is environmental justice and disability. And um, that's because there is very much a crossover between disabled people, racialized people, and environmental um, issues. And often that's not recognized, um, you know, kind of dis- disabled people are put in a disabled pile and other social justice uh, issues have not seen how interwoven different identities are. And so disability justice very much is saying like there is no way for one group to advance if we don't advance all together, right? For me, disability justice also is just about community um, and and an amazing collection of language that is being created, like care webs, which are people who, you know, are creating these webs of of community where you say like, um, oh, I have so many sensitivities to products that I can't find any soap to use. And somebody else says, oh, hey, I create my own because of this same problem. And someone else, you know, ha- is having issues with a doctor. And this person says, oh, I know exactly what to do. And so those community care webs are so important. Terms like cryptula uh, and, and we have a workshop called Crypt Kindness, which is about how the systems have failed us. And so what we've done in community to meet those needs. And so, yeah, disability justice is about coming together. It's about recognizing certain identities that have not been included, um, that are actively left out. Um, You know, we have, uh, I work with uh, Kale and Kale is uh, really into abolitionists and, um, you know, disabled people in jail is something that isn't often discussed right um accessibility if you're in a wheelchair in the jail you know that's a whole other experience uh some people find that they get the mental health that they need while they're in jail but once they get out they don't have the same support or access Mm -hmm. to it so these are issues that do impact us in many different ways and i do want to reiterate that disability justice was created by BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color. Um, I recognize that as a a white person, you know, like disability justice is very important for me, um, but it wasn't created to center my identity. I am trans and queer, which fits in with some of the identities of those who created it, but it was very much created by BIPOC people to recognize the work that Black Indigenous people of color have been doing um, you know, for decades to create community where community was never created for them. 
um, and that ongoing support. Look up the 10 principles of disability justice. They're great. Um, and we do have a workshop, Disability Justice, that uh, is led by Harmony Bongat. And uh, she does a great job of going through the 10 principles and, and how they uh, really kind of impact people's lives. Right. And uh, speaking of workshops, are there other workshops you have coming up that you'd like our audience to know about? Yeah, so we're excited. Next year, what we're hoping to do is have our workshops be online. Um, and so they can be pay for play, but also buy people's, uh, you know, kind of what they can afford. Um, we're also looking forward to that because uh, for some of our members, sitting for a two hour workshop is difficult. And so they'll be able to break it up into chunks or for some of our members, you know, cognitively making it through a huge chunk of information all at once is a little too much and so being able to watch it multiple times is great and we're working with the city of vancouver on creating online versions of the disability awareness workshop right now we with the you know we're coming up to the end of 2023 so we don't have any public workshops coming up until january and in january we're going to be releasing the dates of our public workshops if anybody's interested we do have a newsletter that comes out every two months and uh, it talks about all the projects that we're working on, as well as we'll uh, list any time that we do have public workshops and the availability of those workshops. But yeah, we're really looking forward to having the workshops online. We continue to um, bring forward new workshops every year. Uh, Harmony and I created a queer and trans history for BC and Canada workshop. And this year uh, she adapted it to be a trivia game as well. And so uh, we're really looking forward to increasing audiences with those and continuing to add on to to our current list. And uh, what we're hoping to do with uh, having the workshops online is to also set up a mentoring program so that we can work with disabled and neurodivergent people to make their workshops as well, because there are so many different intricacies to experiences that uh, we are not covering because we either don't recognize or have enough experience with. Um, I just did a research project for people with episodic disabilities who are queer and trans and it was interesting to hear from various, uh, I interviewed 46 people and uh, you know for example one person really went on into great detail about the cross over between neurodivergent people with eating disorders and so you know by the end of the conversation I was like you need to make a workshop about that because yeah there's so many different uh voices that we are still not hearing mm-hmm I'd love to go to that workshop yeah. <laughs> I recently found out I have an eating disorder so there you go be perfect yeah and a lot of uh people who are neurodivergent do have disordered eating like I very much rely on sugar to give me dopamine hits throughout the day but then I mm -hmm. ha also have to deal with the crashes that come from that and so yeah there's there's a lot to be learned right and I guess expanding on some of the points that you've just made about things that the organization is doing moving forward what is your hope for the future of uh, the live educate transform society um you know our workshops have definitely been great and we really enjoyed that and we hope to expand on that both having them online but also getting to bigger audiences and you know, it's been great during COVID because we've been able to have audiences, people who are in the UK and Japan. And we did a, um, a workshop for a church in Alabama. I don't know how oh, they wow. heard about us. <laughs> but so, you know, like being able to spread 
that word out more is great, especially because there's so many small communities who don't think they have disabled people in them. And so again, they need that like disability awareness. Um, and so, yeah, we'd love to get out and, and really kind of into any community and um, the low sensory spaces. We're really excited. You know, we really see an opportunity there. Um, when you think of all the conferences that happen in Vancouver, if uh, low sensory spaces become a common thing that is provided as it should be, um, then we're excited about that. And we're hoping to set up a, a training program for neurodivergent people so that we can hire them as we get busier, but also so we can train people in other parts of the, the province and the country as well um, in how to set up their own low sensory spaces to, to really continue this wave of accessibility. Amazing. And what can our audience do to help? This is a, a question that I ask in every episode. So specifically when it, as it relates to your organization, are there things that the audience can do to, I don't know, volunteer, donate, or just help to uh, reduce barriers to people with disabilities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think just becoming more aware of disability and all the identities that intersect with that. And that could be through coming to our workshops or, um, you know, looking at our resource guide when it comes next year. And, and, you know, if you see anything on social media or you see an article that's really good sharing it, making sure people know about it, opening conversation and like, you know, when someone says, how are you doing today? Or how are you? Be honest, you know, talk about how you are and kind of demystify mental health issues and and emotions and uh also yeah uh, sign up for our newsletter you'll be able to see kind of the work that we do and see if there's certain projects that you'd be interested in volunteering for um right now we have some uh some interns who are doing research for workshops and we're always looking for more researchers who are interested to help us develop workshops um, we are looking for people who can help us with our newsletter. We're improving our website right now. So yeah, if you're interested in volunteering, definitely, uh, connect with us. We're connect with let's on Facebook, Instagram, and that's our website connect with let's.org. If you know of any conference or festival or event that needs a low sensory space, then, uh, give us a shout and, uh, we have a brochure we can share with people. And if you know of anybody uh, that could help us get the word out, like any podcasts, or if you know of anybody you can recommend us to, then that would be great. Part of what we're going to be putting into our uh, website next year is the various consultants that we use and kind of what they can be hired for. And so we're excited that we're, we have quite a lot of growth in 2024 planned and we're working towards that. So coming on the ride with us, you know, like, uh, yeah, learning about the work that we do and signing up for the newsletter and, and just generally like being more aware of these issues yourself or seeking out opportunities where you can have conversations or support people holding space for someone, you know, if you see someone who's having a hard day, just, just being with them and not trying to fix the issue, not trying to, to kind of like have them explain it, just allowing them space to kind of have the feels, you know, and, and, uh, opening up conversation. I mean, we know that in the queer and trans community, right? Like reading your kids books that 
have various genders and sexualities. And if you can't find the books, then do what we did <laughs> with the kid that uh, I help with, which is you just kind of rewrite the book as you're reading it and add different genders and sexualities and names and things. And, and yeah, look for disability inclusive books that don't just have a kid in the, in a wheelchair on the front cover and then never have them again. And the the rest of the, the book, which often happens and oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Thank you very much for uh, all of the suggestions. Stay in touch with uh, with our organization and, uh, you know, we're constantly learning about new subjects and, and new ways to advocate. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to have the conversation. I think there's a lot of really interesting information that came up and I hope our audience has learned something as always. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling. I've been joined today by Heather McCain from Live, Educate, Transform Society. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Burling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.